Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 135. Filmmaking is the ultimate team sport. Michael Keaton. Broadcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, my indie film hustlers, to a special slam dance edition of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Today's show is sponsored by Distribber. If you guys are trying to get your movies or feature films or even shorts onto Netflix, Hulu, Google Play, iTunes, Fandango, or any of the major streaming services, Distribber finally lets you in without having to go through a traditional distributor. And you keep 100% of all the revenues and your rights. So if you want more information, head over to IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash sell my film. That's IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash sell my film. The show is also sponsored by Hollywood Camera Work. If you guys are interested in learning how to direct actors and become an actor's director, Hollywood Camera Work has developed an amazing master course called Directing Actors. And it is almost 30 hours. And I've taken this course, and it is by far the most comprehensive directing actors course I have ever seen. So if you want to get access to this course, head over to hollywoodcamerawork.com and use the coupon code HUSTLE to get 30% off. That's hollywoodcamerawork.com and use the coupon code HUSTLE. So guys, in this episode, you are in for a treat. Uh, this has been a special Sundance edition uh, throughout this time, but today is a special Slam Dance edition of the podcast. I have one of the co-founders of the Slam Dance Film Festival, Dan Mervish. And Dan is by far one of the most entertaining guests I've ever had on the show. He is uh, a wealth of knowledge. He tells the most amazing stories you can ever imagine. It's like sitting around a campfire, listening to how he disrupted the Oscars, how he um, disrupted the, <laughs> disrupted the Sundance Film Festival, how Robert Redford called him a parasite, uh, and all sorts of craziness. He's He is a rebel... Uh, and an indie film hustler, to say the least. And now, uh, this is special because I got the opportunity to interview Dan twice. So in this episode, you're actually going to listen to my first interview with him, which I did a few weeks ago prior to going to the Sundance and Slamdance Film Festivals. So that's this is a, an original podcast that I did a while ago, uh, a few weeks ago. And then also in the show notes, which are at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 135, and if you go to those show notes, you'll be able to see 
the actual interview that I did with him and Sebastian Tordas in our special uh, series that we did over at Park City uh, this year. And that's a completely separate interview, which has new and unique and fun stories as well. So if you can't get enough of Dan, you got him twice. You get him once in this podcast, and then you get him again in uh, a live uh, interview that I did with Sebastian. Uh, And again, thank you so much, Sebastian, for uh, making those interviews as awesome as they are. And also want to give a big shout out to Media Circus PR, who helped with the recording and helped us uh, set up the entire interview series at their amazing pad in Park City, right on Main Street. Uh, Adam and Terry, thank you so, so much. And you can, uh, if you need some PR for your movies, guys, these guys are specialists in PR for independent films, and they're affordable, and they work with filmmakers all the time. So you can hit them up at mediacircuspr.com. So without any further ado, here is my interview with the one, the only, Dan Mervish. I'd like to welcome to the show Dan Mervish, man. Dan, thanks so much for uh, jumping on the, the the hustle, man. Appreciate it. Uh, happy happy to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me on. You are, as they, as they say, the definition of uh, indie film hustle. <laughs> <laughs> You're one of the OG OG uh, indie film hustlers out there. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. So how? Um, so obviously you're the co-founder of Slam Dance, and there's been a lot of myth around the creation of Slam Dance. And I would, I mean, just like I've heard every story under the under under the sun about how yeah. it happened, and Slam Dance sent the hitman after you, and all this kind of stuff. So Sundance, Sundance, yeah, yeah, yeah Sundance, yeah, yeah Sundance sent a hitman after right. you, and all this kind of stuff. So, can you please tell us? Well, first of all, why you started Slam Dance, yeah. and and uh, what what the truth is about all these myths? <laughs> well, this was this was back in. I mean, uh, the first time we did Slam Dance was, it was January '95, but back in in '94. Um, I had uh, I had just finished uh, my first feature, uh, which was called Omaha the Movie, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, set in Nebraska, which is where I'm from. But it, it also counted as my thesis film for USC Film School, okay. and uh, it was just a fun, goofy, romantic comedy. But um, but anyway, but it was uh, you know, but back back then, the kind of the way things would work was you would. Um, you would show your film at the independent feature film market, which is now called IFP Week, mm-hmm. and um, you know because you know we we all shot on film and we had these big heavy prints to lug around, <laughs> and then um, festival programmers especially would would show up, and this was in New York at the uh, they held it at the Angelica Theater, and. Um, and and like the year before, you know, Kevin Smith had shown Clerks, and the programmers from Sundance saw it, and they invited him, and he, you know, turned into Kevin Smith. So mm-hmm. it was like, all right, that was that was kind of the model if you finished around that time of year, and and, and really the paradigm was at the time that if you didn't get into Sundance, um, you, you were screwed, you were dead in the water. <laughs> I mean, I, I had one distributor who saw the film at, at that same market and said, "We love your film, we want to distribute it." And it was a big indie film distributor at the time. Um, uh, if it gets into Sundance, I'm like, wait, but you just said you liked it so much. And we're like, well, yeah, but if we can't launch it at Sundance, what's the point? Wow. So, and they were, so everyone was very matter of fact about it, that that was really, 
you know, where you had to be. You know, if you weren't at Sundance, you wouldn't get distribution, wouldn't get an agent, you wouldn't get financiers on your next film. You wouldn't get into, you wouldn't get invited into other regional festivals in the U.S. or international festivals because they would just all kind of for their shorthand, just take the Sundance catalog and say, all right, well, I guess these are the indie films this year. Let's, well, that's our block of programming. So anyway, uh, and then at the IFFM, we met a lot of other, I was there with my producing partner, Dana Altman, uh, who lives in Omaha and uh, was was uh, Robert Altman's grandson. And Dana was, was particularly isolated living in Omaha. I, I lived in LA at the time, mm-hmm. just gone back tell him how to shoot the movie. Um, and, and he kind of had sort of an amorphous idea to sort of get a bunch of film, because we were meeting a lot of great filmmakers from all over the country, like to have some kind of network to talk to one another. And this was around the time the internet was taking off. Mm-hmm. Um, and know, it makes it sound old when you say something like that. It exactly. makes it sound old like, you know, the internet was just starting. It was just starting, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it, was, it was like a year before IndieWire. And um, anyway, so, so we actually had a big meeting with a bunch of other filmmakers there. And we're all like, yeah, 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 let's all stay in touch. Because, you know, you're so isolated as a filmmaker, even to this day, like, um, you know, making your film and then – you know, you don't start talking to other filmmakers until you're done with it, really. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, but we weren't quite sure how how this idea would manifest itself. But then, meanwhile, we were also talking about like how the year before, a couple filmmakers in in January '94 didn't get into Sundance and did their own little renegade screenings in Park City. And and one of the group of filmmakers was uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, uh, the <laughs> South Park guys. But this yeah. is before South Park. They had their first film, uh, which was their thesis project from uh, University of Colorado, which was uh, called um, Cannibal Cannibal the Musical. Yes. Uh, at the time. A, tra- a, tra- a trauma movie now. Tra- well, eventually it would become. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, exactly. At the time, it actually had a different title. Anyway, they didn't get in Sundance. They did their own little renegade screening, and they'd gotten a little bit of attention for it. Um, and I think we had the same lawyer as they did. So we had heard about these guys. And then another filmmaker named, uh, named James Marandino had a film called The Upstairs Neighbor. He had done a similar kind of screening, like in a hotel room. Anyway, so we'd heard about these guys and we, and we were all kind of talking at the IFFM about, well, I guess our plan B is if we don't get into Sundance, let's just do what these guys did last year and just show up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it wasn't until Sundance announced their, their uh, list of of you know filmmakers that year that we realized that of the ninety five completed feature films that played at the IFFM that year, Sundance didn't take a single one, wow. and we were all kind of stunned because we thought at least some of us like we all thought our own films were going to get in and these mm-hmm. other poor bastards wouldn't wouldn't get in but you know we <laughs> <Right>? all <laughs> in our own films you know? right. And, uh, I mean, I had a color poster. I was one of the only films with a color poster. That was a big deal, you know. So. Um, <laughs> But anyway, so we didn't, none of us got in. And, and if you think about it, I mean, 95 was really a, a pivotal year for independent film in general. It was kind of, it was around that time that Miramax became part of uh, uh, Disney, um, mm-hmm. uh, Fine Line became part of Warner Brothers, Fox was launching Fox Searchlight at Sundance 95. And, and there was this kind of Hollywoodization of the independent film scene. And Sundance was kind of part of that scene and, and, and went along for the ride. And so they programmed a lot more second time directors, you know, great films, great directors, but a lot, but they kind of left behind the niche of the first time directors. Cause we'd all been influenced by kind of that first generation of first mm-hmm. wave of Sundance filmmakers, the Soderbergh's and Rodriguez and, mm-hmm. 
link letters. And, um, and, and we, they left behind that niche. So we had no place to go. So we kind of took, uh, it was actually, uh, Shane Kuhn, another filmmaker that we'd met out there who strangely enough had also sh- lived in LA, but shot his film, uh, which was called redneck in, uh, in Nebraska. Um, he kind of had the idea to combine Dana's idea of this cooperative something and, and with this plan B idea. And he called me up and he said, why don't we do this thing where we all show up in park city with, and do a renegade festival. And I was like, yeah, we got nothing to lose. Literally. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we've already had distributors tell us they're not going to pick up the film if it's not there. So you know, we had a responsibility to ourselves and to our investors and our actors to, to show up. Uh, and then we got another guy named John Fitzgerald involved. And, um, and, and pretty soon we had a dozen features and a dozen shorts. Uh, a guy named uh, Paul Rackman had the first short film that, that we decided to show. Um, and we realized that we each team of filmmakers had a little something ex- something to bring to the table. You know, Paul's uh, producing partner was a projectionist. Great, we need projectionists, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's this, uh, this film called low from New York with, uh, directed by Lisa Raven, but her, her boyfriend at the time, Frank Hudak, he was a projectionist. We're like, great, you're in, you know? And, um, and word kind of spread quickly among people that didn't get into Sundance that we had this thing going on. And, uh, um, now was Shane, it, was it up, was it up the hill at that time? Well, no, that was the funny thing is there initially we thought, well, you know, uh, none of us had really been there. Shane had been to Salt Lake. He'd spent a year at the university there and he had some connections at the university of Utah. So initially they agreed to screen our films, um, at the university of Utah, which is, which is in Salt Lake city. And we, we looked at the map and we're like, well, yeah, that's just like a half inch away from park city. So that's <laughs> no problem for people to get back and forth and from park city down to Salt Lake. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the short version is that we we showed up in at, at the University of Utah and like and nobody else did. You know, I mean, we had screenings there, but nobody was showing up from from uh, Park City. So, so by the second day, um, these filmmakers behind Low, uh, Lisa Raven and Frank Hudak, uh, they, uh, I tagged along with them, and we we rented a sixty. Their film was in sixteen millimeter, so we rented a sixteen millimeter projector in Salt Lake, and then drove up in the middle of a blizzard. Um, and I remember cause we had a, a screen sticking out the back window of the rental car and, and I was sitting in the back with the screen, the snow pouring in my face, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, we go up to park city at like 11 o'clock at night. And like the second place we found was the prospector hotel and like the local, you know, pimply faced, uh, hotel man at desk clerk, uh, agreed to rent us a, a room there. You know, like a little tiny conference room there. Well, the conference room was was literally thirty feet down the hall from Sundance's main venue, or oh. you know, uh, which was the, you know they had taken the prospectors like um, you know big conference room and turned it into a, a big uh, screening venue. And so we we set up a screening room there, and the next morning we had screenings like set up fifteen minutes after every Sundance um, screening, so that we got their overflow line. They mm-hmm. were just or into our screening room. And then, and then a few days later, we figured out a way to do 35 millimeter films at the Yarrow hotel. And, and by the end of the week, we were screening all of our films in park city and actually kept screening the films in, in Salt Lake too, uh, mm-hmm. cause we're obligated to. And, uh, and that was, that was how it all started. And, and, and what did Sundance have to say about all this? Oh, well, they weren't happy at all. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, Shane, I think still somewhere has a, a voicemail message from, from, uh, Jeff Gilmore, yeah. <laughs> uh, who was running Sundance at the time, uh-huh. this angry 
uh, rant uh, about us. Um, but, and and then, and then before the festival even started, because we had gotten some nice press in, in, uh, well, everywhere, but uh, the front page of Variety, you know, uh, Hollywood Reporter, uh, I think, um, New York Times, you know, all, all kinds of places. And, um, and we were kind of the darlings of the press because that was sort of the year that the press was turning on Sundance too because they noticed this kind of Hollywoodization of indie film. Mm-hmm. Sundance kind of had gone from the darling to sort of, you know, these angry reporters, you know, talking about them. Mm-hmm. And, and we were sort of the, the the fun little sidebar story in every article about Sundance. So Sundance wasn't too happy with us. Um, the next year, Robert Redford called us Parasites, which was kind of the best wow. press. Wow. Um, and, and actually at one point, the university of Utah, they were afraid they actually pulled the plug on us like a couple weeks before we started. They said, sorry, we're going to cancel this thing. And we're like, why? And they were like, well, cause we're too afraid that Sundance is going to get so pissed off that they're not going to let our professors have free tickets and do programs with us during the year. And then we think it was actually Sundance who sort of got back to them and said, no, 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 you, you that's going to make us look really, really bad. So you have to let them keep doing it. So in a weird way, Sundance sort of saved us in, in a bizarre way. Mm-hmm. But anyway, but then in, in, the, in the first few years, they, Sundance kept trying to outbid us for our venues out there. And they kept chasing us from one venue to another. Mm-hmm. And by this point, uh, Peter Baxter was involved. He, he had produced one of the films the first year and he's still very much, you know, kind of runs a festival. And, um, you know, we would put down deposits at the Arrow Hotel and things like that, and then Sundance would sort of outmuscle us for them. And then we were very lucky to develop a relationship with the folks who run the Treasure Mountain Inn, which is a small kind of family-run hotel at the top of Main Street. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and, and they really took a shine to us, and, and we've been there for most of our 22 years now. So. Yeah, I've been – I was there – I've been to Slamdance probably about three times. Uh, every time I've overcome Sundance, I always go to Slamdance because there's always, yeah. always a lot of fun to go up there. And the energy is a little different up there than it is down oh, yeah. there. <laughs> it is uh, the type of movies you guys play and just the kind of real rebel, real, in- real indie, honestly, uh, yeah. vibe as opposed to sometimes Sundance does, uh, does not have that. Uh, and, and it's, if you're ever, if, if anyone listening, if you guys go to Park City this year, uh, definitely go up the hill. It is a fucking trek, <laughs> especially yeah. when you're when you're not used to the altitude. Yeah, those no, it's like those blocks. Something. Yeah, those four blocks, man, <laughs> they kill you. Yeah, but now you also got you also um, discovered a bunch of people there, like exactly, uh, Chris yeah. Chris Nolan. I know is one. Who, who yeah. Lynn Shelton, the Russo uh, brothers. Lynn Shelton, yeah, the Russo brothers, Ryan Johnson. Um, uh, ben Zeitlin, who did Beast of the Southern Wild, uh, we showed his first couple shorts. Um, Napoleon Dynamite, we showed the short that sort of turned into Napoleon Dynamite, and I actually introduced uh, um, uh, Jared to his producers on Napoleon based uh, based on his screening up there of the short. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Oren Pelly was there with um, Paranormal Activity. That was a slam dance film. Wow, Paranormal. So, so Paranormal yeah, launched there. It, it did, yeah. Wow. In fact, it was. It, it sold it sold to DreamWorks up there, although it wasn't that big of an announcement because everyone just thought, oh, they're buying the remake rights. Like, okay, that's nice, you know. Yeah, because not- yeah, exactly. Who's gonna who's gonna put out an eight thousand dollar horror movie theatrically? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and then it was only like you know nine months later that they decided to put it out, you know, almost as is. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, Sundance or, or sorry, Slamdance has really developed into you know our motto has always been kind of or 
or the, or the requirements for um, uh, for competition films anyway has always been first time directors with with no distribution in place and and limited budgets and so because of that we show a lot of great you know very talented first time directors um, Bong Joon Ho big South Korean director. We showed his first film too, and um, and then what happens is a lot of these filmmakers, um, then their subsequent films or second film, or if they started with a short, then their first feature will will then play at Sundance in, in subsequent years. And you know, I was talking to Ben Zeitlin a couple of years ago, and, and he said, and I said, you know, is it is it any coincidence that not only do Slamdance filmmakers then play their next film at Sundance, but when they do, they do really well there. They win prizes, they get the best press. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, it's, it's because we, we're kind of a training camp. You know, once they've been to Park City once in, with Slamdance, they know what condos to get, what, you know, when to get mm-hmm. their flu shots, when to, you know, <laughs> what publicists to hire. And so they really, they hit the ground running when they do get to Sundance. And I think that's made a big difference for people like Ben and, and, and Lynn Shelton, you know, that have really, you know, that did great at, at Slamdance, but once they got to Sundance, they really, they, like I said, they hit the ground running and, and they, they, you know, just take this, the town by storm. So, um, and I think it's taken a while for Sundance to figure out that, oh, that's where so many of their top filmmakers have come from. They started at Slamdance. Like, huh. Yeah, and they don't want to hear that, but that's yeah. the way it is. You yeah. you are you are the uh, the David to uh, to the to the Sundance Goliath, and it's exactly. that, I think that's why everyone loves loves Slamdance because yeah, they, and and also the way we do our programming is is different in that it, it's all alumni based. So if if you played a film at the festival, then more likely than not, you're going to be a programmer the next year, and so it's not it's not just a matter of you know, these filmmakers have, you know, played at Slamdance and then they've gone on to greater things, is that they've also stayed really involved with the festival. I mean, Chris Nolan's wife, Emma Thomas, who's his producing partner, mm-hmm. she was a programmer for two or three years. The Russo brothers were programmers for three or four years and have been back as jurors and, you know, a bunch of times. Uh, Ryan Johnson was a programmer for a year. So these guys have all really stayed involved as, and it's much more a filmmaker community as much as it is a festival. So very cool. Uh, when, yeah. when, when Nolan was there with, with the following, yeah. how, how was that? I mean, if, if you don't want me to ask it, I mean, that must've well, been like 14 people in the audience at his first screening. <laughs> and, um, yeah. It was kind of funny. Cause he, he had, he had actually just sold the film right before the festival started. Like we programmed it and didn't have distribution. And then based on getting into the festival, at least a little bit got picked up by a small company called, um, Zeitgeist Films out mm-hmm. in New York, and they showed up. It was these two kind of pretentious ladies who run it, but um, mm-hmm. and, and they showed up and at the festival, and they were like, and saw us setting up the the you know the bleachers and yeah, the yeah. seats, yeah. and they were like, "Oh, how quaint!" <laughs> oh, son right. of a bitch! <laughs> and, they, they, and that was the last we ever saw of them. And then Chris and Emma showed up, and they're like, "Oh, so um, so I guess our distributor put up a bunch of posters and flyers," and we're like, "No, they did nothing." And that's why you only have 14 people at your screening. So we're like, get your ass down to Kinko's and make some flyers and hit the streets and pass some shit out. And um, and they did. And so they filled their, their next screening. Oh, know? wow. And it won a, an award at the festival. And, you know, I mean, he was already on his way towards making Memento at that point. But, um, you know, and that would come shortly thereafter. But but that was, you know, it was a perfect example. It doesn't matter how good you are, how famous you're going to become. Um, if you don't promote your own film, even at Sundance, um, mm-hmm. no one's going to show up. So, 
it's there's just as you say, I mean, the hike up the hill is so long, and, and there's so many things going on in Park City. I mean, oh my God, and now it's all corporate everything, like you oh, know, yeah, the BMW the, suite and the yeah. this suite and the that suite. It's and and I I haven't honestly have not been. This will be the first year I go back uh-huh. in probably a decade. Oh wow! It's yeah, so no, it's changed. I mean, even a decade ago, I was like, "Oh my god, this is so yeah, much." Yeah, it's so already bad then. It was already getting back. It was rough back then. But yeah. um, so let me ask you. So you wrote a book called "The Cheerful." <laughs> I love this title, "The Cheerful Subversive Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking." Great right. title, by the way. It's a really great Thank title. Why, why? Why did you? Why did you decide to kind of sit down and and write this book? Yeah, I. You know, I had been doing articles for mainly filmmaker magazine um but also some for film thread and indiewire and couple and huffington post um for the last few years just kind of as i've been making you know my own films my last film was called between us with uh, julia styles and tay diggs and especially after that you know i learned a lot of great valuable lessons that i just wanted to you know write up in in filmmaker uh magazine and and Scott McCauley is the editor of Filmmaker. He's a, he's a, you know, I've known him for 20 years and he, he was happy to run those articles. And a lot of them really, you know, the response was great. Like how to cast A-list actors in a low budget film and, you know, what's an alternative method of, um, you know, going to film festivals besides just going to Toronto or Sundance. And, and, and a lot of other filmmakers really responded to those, those articles. And so I, you know, I had some time and I was actually on my way to New York to, to getting ready to close the, the option agreement I had, uh, on my, <laughs> on the film I just shot on Bernard and Huey. I, I've been working with, uh, Jules Pfeiffer, you know, Oscar winning Pulitzer winning, uh, uh, you know, the legend who had written the script 30 years ago and it, and it took us like a year and a half to find the script another year and a half to close the deal. And I was heading to New York to, uh, I had a couple days trip there and I was getting ready to, uh, and we were going to close the deal, but there was, there was some last minute hitches in the deal with, uh, with lawyers and stuff. And I was like, Oh no, I'm not going to be able to like meet up with him and sign the deal. I'm like, how else do I justify two days in New York to my wife, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and my kids. So I'm like, all right, what else is in New York? Ah, publishers are in New York. Why don't I pitch a book? And, um, and so I did, <laughs> I met with a couple of publishers on that trip and one of them was focal press and they, they, you know, they said, uh, yeah, that sounds great. And, and they liked the articles that I'd already written. And, and I could kind of structure a book around those articles. Um, you know, in the end, the articles were only about, you know, probably 40% of the book. The rest I had to actually write from mm-hmm. scratch. Right, <laughs> and, uh, right. Um, but it was fine because by then we, we'd gotten the rights to the movie. We'd done a Kickstarter campaign and, and, uh, and was, was casting, you know, spent several months casting and financing for that. So in the midst of all that, I had some time to, you know, put a book together. Um, you know, it's amazing. You think I, am not good at multitasking for the most part, but this, this was actually one where the timing of the book and the movie kind of worked out well, you know, they kind of dovetailed together nicely. Very cool. Um, and honestly it was, you know, while I was writing some of the stuff about setting up an LLC and business plans and things like that, I was doing it at the time. So it was a good reminder for myself, like, Oh yeah, this is how I do this stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, I write it down or, you know, I had a bunch of interns and we would be like researching SEC regulations. Like, all right, well, I guess this will go in the book, you know? So, <laughs> So it was, it, it worked out pretty nicely and, um, you know, and I realized I'd written a bunch of articles over the years. So, um, and, and also, you know, it's, it's packed filled with, um, poems. I do every, every year at Slamdance, I do an opening night poem 
which is usually relevant to some, you know, element of, uh, of indie filmmaking that year, you know, whether it's piracy or kick or crowdfunding or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I'll stick those poems in there, you know, in the margins. And, uh, so those are, those are in the book. And, uh, two of my kids did some of the illustrations and there's a How lot cool. of cool. So, yeah, so it was, uh, you know, a lot of this, so it's a lot of stories about my own filmmaking, but then I also have, um, little sidebar articles called, uh, uh, what's it, what are they called? The uh, name dropper. Yeah. The name droppers. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with like, with, you know, cause no one's really heard of me or my film. So I talk about like, you know, like Ryan Johnson or Alexander Payne or John Carpenter or Robert Altman, like, mm-hmm. you know, people that I've had sort of brushes with over the years and, and kind of lessons I've learned from, you know, or, or Steven Soderbergh who's been involved with Slam Dance and, and, um, you know, or the Russo brothers or, or people like that. Did, did you, did, did Soderbergh, well, Soderbergh was, uh, his first movie was uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, right? Yeah, yeah. So he, he got involved with us at Slam Dance because um, right after our first year we did Slam Dance, uh, South by Southwest had their, I think it was their first or second year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was showing my film, uh, Omaha the Movie, there. And I met Steven at a party there. And I was kind of afraid to meet him. I thought, oh, this is Mr. Sundance. He's going to hate me, you know, mm-hmm. but it turned out he had had a big falling out with Robert Redford and, and with really? Sunday and, uh, which I had no idea about, but, um, and so he really loved what we were doing with slam dance. And, and I met Linkletter that same weekend and, and, uh, he, he loved what we were doing too. And so Soderbergh said, well, I've got, I'm working on two films because he was kind of souring on the sort of studio mm-hmm studio films he was doing at the time he had just done a film called the underneath which i thought was a great film but mm-hmm. he really hated it or hated the experience of making it um and so he was producing uh the day trippers uh greg matola's first film and he mm-hmm. said oh, this is great this is gonna be great for, for slam dance i'm gonna bring it there so he brought it there the next year in 96 and then in 97 we showed schizopolis which steven directed yeah and uh which was just this crazy it's 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 just nuts i saw it on criterion when it came out yeah yeah and it but it was really inspiring for slam man's filmmakers and and we introduced him to the russo brothers that year in 97 he saw their first film pieces and he said hey guys why don't you come out to hollywood i'm got this little company with my pal george and uh you know (laughs) we'll put you under our wing and that launched uh, the Russo brothers' career. Well, I mean, no, but uh, one thing about Soderbergh is that he has been quietly behind the scenes helping a lot of filmmakers. I mean, he he shepherds in Chris Nolan, um, from mm-hmm. my understanding, and now the Russo yeah, exactly. brothers. I mean, he's yeah. and and a lot of people don't know he also DPs all his own stuff as well. Yeah, because yeah. uh, he keeps that. He's just a very so Soderbergh's one of those interesting, really interesting filmmakers because he just. Uh, does his own thing and and he's quiet about it. Like I, I heard once that he's like he drove up in his used like you know a guy like him who's got obviously you know he's a multimillionaire and all this kind of stuff. But he has, he just shows up into his, his like used car or something like that. And people were like, "That's Steven Soderbergh's car." I'm like, he's like, "Yeah, what what's the problem?" I just yeah. <laughs> you know he's really down to earth. He's just like, "Hey, oh, this totally. is this is just the way it is, guys." Um, I, I really I really admired him a lot. But um, but anyway, so I was going to ask you. Um, what would you tell a new filmmaker about try, who's trying to get financing for their first film? Because there's so many filmmakers who need money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you really you need money to make a movie. I mean, there's no it's an expensive it's it. an expensive I mean, art. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are ways to make a movie for less money and ways to make a movie for more money. But one way or the other, you need something. So, I mean, I I'm I'm a big fan of crowd 
of crowdfunding. Um, you know, I've used Kickstarter on my last two films, um, you know, and, uh, and I think it's, it's great. I mean, I also think that it's, I mean, philosophically, I, th I think people need to be realistic that, you know, look, I investing in movies is, is never going to be a good return. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a lousy investment. Um, so on, on most of my films, I've at least tried to do this, and, and it's, it's worked nicely on this last film where we, t we team up with a fiscal sponsor, a 501c3. In this case, I used a Filmmaker Collaborative mm -hmm. uh, based in L.A. And you can – and a lot of people don't know you can, you can uh, meld that into your – crowdfunding campaign, whether it's Indiegogo or Kickstarter or whatever else, uh, or Seed and Spark, um, and sort of, which means that anyone giving money to your crowdfunding campaign um, gets a tax deduction, which is really nice for them. If you're giving any, if, if, if someone rich is giving you money, chances are they want to get a, a tax deduction or, mm -hmm. or a return on investment. Well, if you can't give them a return on investment, at least give them a deduction. So, right, at least. Anyway, so the point is, um, yeah, because I, I kind of, and I've written about this before. Uh, you know, I, I see, you know, film is more, or indie film is really more akin to, you know, community theater or or opera or symphony or public radio. Like you don't invest in your local public radio station. No, you donate money and they give you a tote bag. It's like, <laughs> all right, why should we be any different than that? And so, um, so I think crowdfunding in general and, and, and specifically tying it in with, with non-for-profits, um, I think is a great way to raise money that way. But keep in mind, it's called Kickstarter. It's not called kick finisher. So, um, <laughs> you know, so I'm a big believer that you, you sort of, you leverage a little bit of money and then you use that to, you know, either hire a casting director or pay for the lawyer to get the rights or, you know, or whatever other development money. Um, and then once you get an actor, you know, then you, are in a much stronger position to raise more money through slightly more traditional means, you know, whether it's investors or foreign sales or something else. How do you, um, how do you connect with these nonprofits? Like how is that, how does that conversation come about? I'm just curious. Well, in documentaries, people have been doing it for 30 years. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a long established thing in, in documentaries, either through a specific cause, if you're, if mm -hmm. it's a cause based doc or, or, or you do it through the International Documentary Association, the IDEA, mm -hmm. and, uh, which has a really great, um, fiscal sponsor program where people donate money to the IDEA. They take a 5% fee. You get, you know, the rest of it. And they've been doing this for years. Um, in the narrative space, there's not as many options. Filmmaker Collaborative based in LA is one. Um, uh, the San Francisco Film Society, I think. So then what do you do? You literally just call them up like, hey, I have a movie and I'd yeah. like to, to work with you? Exactly. That's it. And yeah. then they, do you pitch them the story? Do they take everybody that calls them? How does it no, work? No, they, I don't think they take everybody. The San Francisco group is a bit more specific. You've got a, you've got a, um, you know, do a proposal, even filmmaker collaborative, which takes, I think, a lot of people. Um, I, I had to, you know, do a pitch, you know, proposal for them. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, you know, there's a few arts organizations in New York. Um, you know, IFP in New York does it, but you can't, but I think with, you have to be careful because some of them do it, but they, but then they don't allow you to mix and match, um, nonprofit money with equity investment money. Um, I think mm -hmm. Filmmaker Collaborative is pretty much the only one that lets you mix and match what you get through your nonprofit contributions mm -hmm. with 
equity investment money. Now, as far as the IRS is concerned, it's totally legal to do that. There's no, there's no reason why these organizations can't be doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think Filmmaker Collaborative is the only one. And then I introduced them to the folks at Kickstarter because they had never done a Kickstarter campaign through them. And mm-hmm. the Kickstarter folks were like, yeah, there's no reason we can't do it with them. So, so then it allows you to mix and match you know, small crowdfunding with nonprofits. So it's Kickstarter. Uh, is Kickstarter uh, associated now with Film Collaborative? So have any Kickstarter well, campaign or no? It doesn't uh, work not, that way. Not every Kickstarter. No, you have to be. You have to go through Film Collaborative first, mm-hmm. and then when you do all your paperwork with with Kickstarter, then you say, okay, this actually the check goes to them, not to me, and and you know, kind of goes that that route. Now, each time you do this, you're losing a little bit of percentage on your donations, but. Um, you, you know, so you you have to. Oh, so film that. collaborative takes a piece, of course. Yeah, they take like five uh, percent or something. Yeah, it's not that bad for. So, yeah, but yeah, but it's also it's nice to it's been nice for me because like they have a little page up for my film that even beyond the thirty day Kickstarter campaign, like I can still tell people to donate to my film, and they have you know, uh, mm-hmm. kind of indefinitely through filmmaker collaborative. So you don't, you know, normally when you finish a Kickstarter campaign, like the, like 30 minutes after you end, you get all these people saying, Oh, that's too bad. I wish I could have given you money, but I, I just missed the deadline. I, oh, well, don't you hate that? You go, no, 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 no. here's this other button. Click here, you know? So, um, so anyway, the, the, but the point is that, you know, that people want to, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo have really changed the paradigm of how people think about indie filmmaking from being this investment paradigm. Like you get investors, you don't pay them back, they break your kneecaps, and then they don't invest in another film again. Right. And now people are are thinking about film in terms of, of more like public radio. Like, oh, okay, my buddy has a film, I'll give him 20 bucks, you know, <laughs> or – you know, or, or or my nephew has a film. I'll give him a hundred bucks. Um, and it's 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 more ingrained in the culture now to do that as compared to a few years ago, where it just it wasn't there wasn't even a mechanism for that. And of course, now the interesting thing um, is that the SEC has now made it legal to do uh, uh, equity investment through crowdfunding. So Indiegogo yeah. just announced that they're going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Kickstarter is still saying they're not, but we'll see if that changes. And there's mm-hmm. a few other companies out there. I mean, it's very new, so people have to you know, really pay attention to the rules and see if it's going to work out. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. You know, yeah, I mean, if you want to, I mean, I guess it wouldn't work for $20, but I think if you're, if you're you know, as far as an equity investor is concerned, but, yeah. but on a larger stance, if you're trying to raise 100 grand and you're like, look, We've got blocks um, that you know for ten thousand bucks you could become an equity investor or something like that, or yeah, five thousand bucks or something. And like they've that. really and that and it also loosened the restrictions. I mean, I remember the old days, like you know, trying to raise money for my first film. Like we had to be really, really careful. Like we couldn't even throw a party because it broke SEC violate. You know, really. You know, and so, or you could throw a party, but not tell people what the investment was. It's like, well, then why are we throwing a party? You know, it was just. Weird. All these bells and whistles to jump through, and which are there for a reason. You know, they didn't want to sucker every little old lady into giving money. I mean, these these rules go back to the the you mm-hmm. know the crash in nineteen twenty nine. You know, mm-hmm. so I, so. I, you, but as a fil- but look, I mean, as a filmmaker, you don't learn this stuff at Tisch. You know, you've got to- no, you do not learn it at film school. There's no question. Yeah, I mean, you've got to get an MBA almost to to figure out this stuff, or read my book that you're yeah, supposed to obvi- read. Obviously, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, you know, and hopefully, I mean, I put a lot of the stuff in there, and hopefully, make it interesting to read too. You know, 
Um, it's like, I mean, it's tough to write a chapter about, about the, you know, about the automated, uh, you know, registering system for the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is called Edgar, Mm -hmm. you know, but strangely enough, I think I made that even an interesting little chapter, you know, um, because (laughs) once you get into it, it's actually not that intimidating. And a lot of the stuff you can do yourself, you don't have to hire a lawyer and spend $5,000 just to register your LLC, which some people are charging, you know, you actually can do the stuff yourself and learn a lot so that you know how to do it the next time too. Now, um, I, on your movie Between Us, you had a pretty insane cast. How do you, how do you attach name cast to a budget, a project that has a low budget? Exactly. Well, that's, that is the trick. And I think, um, and I've been able to kind of figure out at least one, one way of doing it, um, or a couple ways of doing it. I mean, number one, y- you need the material, you need the, the script that is going to attract cast. So then you have to think, okay, what kinds of scripts do actors, good actors want to do? Because there's so many actors that have, they've made money in TV or they've made money in big features. They want to do something interesting and creative and, 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 you know, show up at festivals. Um, so what is it, what is it that attracts them? So there's a couple things. One is if you have a drama where they can really have big, monologue scenes where actors can chew the scenery. Um, they love that because they know at the very least they can put it on their reel, you know, or, or <laughs> right. out of it or, you or know, show them. Yeah. Show them another aspect of themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So especially if they're a comedian and they, and you offer them a drama or they're, or they're, you know, drama actor and you offer them a comedy. Um, the other thing is if you make a musical, um, actors love to sing and almost never get a chance to sing. It's very true, actually. Yeah, but almost every actor, at least in America, got their start in musical theater in high school. So, and they've never had a chance to sing on film. So, I did my film Open House, um, and originally it was just a straightforward comedy. And then when I kind of realized that about actors, my writing partner and I, Larry Maddox, and I, we turned it into a musical. And sure enough, we got you know Oscar nominee Sally Kellerman because it turned out she was a cabaret singer but had never hadn't sung in a film musical since Lost Horizons in 1969. We got, you know, uh, Anthony Rapp from Rent uh, to be in it. And we never would, you know, we never would have got, and that was a $20,000 budget. You know, I mean, it was tiny. You know, it was the first film shot on the DVX 100. And Uh, um, that's my favorite, that that workhorse back in the day. Yeah, we were (laughs) actually the first, yeah. So, um, but anyway, but, but, you know, we got some great TV actors and some, some other great film actors and, um, uh, but it was literally because it was a musical and, and we said they're going to sing live on set, which they also never, you know, very rarely get a chance to do, mm-hmm. you know, that got us that cast. Um, in the case of between us, it was the material I specifically looked for an off Broadway play. I looked for a play and found, um, a great, uh, off Broadway play. It had been a successful play called between us by written by Joe Hortua. Um, and, and it, I knew it had, you know, number one, it was, Production wise, it would be fairly simple to do because it was four people in two rooms kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it turns out it was a lot more complicated than that, but it always um, is. <laughs> it always is. But but I knew that um, the roles were really you know strong dramatic roles that would attract actors, and so we wound up getting David Harbour, who's now famous from Stranger Things, and he'd been in the original play. Uh, Julia Stiles, uh, Melissa George, Tay Diggs, you know, and. Um, uh, and also kind of being racially diverse helped, you know, Tay wasn't getting offered sort of 
you know, non-racially specific parts. Mm-hmm. And so, and this was, you know, that he could have been, you know, the part could have been anything. So I was like, yeah, let's, let's, let's get an African-American actor in there, you know, and, and Tay loved it. You know, it was, uh, it was a real departure for him and, uh, from the TV work on private practice or something that he'd been doing for a few years, it was a chance to kind of get back to his theater roots. So, um, and he got to work with Julia again. No, he'd never. No, I thought that didn't they work on what was the, no, the what? that was a different black guy. Oh, uh, sorry. Oh, god, that's horrible. <laughs> I thought they was. I swear to God, I thought it was they. That doesn't make you a racist. That's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we we got that a lot. Um, oh, did but, you? <laughs> yeah, but the the other thing though is um, is to have really strong female roles because if you think about it too, there are so many more actresses than actors in Hollywood, and that and again, go back to every high school drama program in America and it's always like 80, 20, you know, women, you know, girls to boys. And that carries through into Hollywood that there are a lot more famous actresses who rightly so complain that they never get good roles, uh, than there are actors. And, um, and because of that, if you have some really good uh, roles for women, um, and especially slightly older women or, you know, older than 22, um, (laughs) you will get, you, you know, you will get some really great actresses. I mean, we had a lot of people who really wanted those parts in Between Us. I mean, we, they were fighting for those parts. And and same thing on Between uh, on Bernard and Huey, which is, is two male leads. Uh, and in the end, we got Oscar winner uh, Jim Rash and, and David Koechner. But for our women parts, we had, um, uh, you know, we we had some great actresses. Uh, uh, we wound up with um, uh, Sasha Alexander from Rizzoli and Isles, but she'd been a lot of other fun things and, and, uh, Bellamy Young and Nancy Travis. And, and it was, you know, but it, and they were all amazing in the movie. Now, do you and, go out to their agents directly or do you have a casting director? Well, I've, um, I always work with a casting director and I've had uh, different ones kind of on all my films. Um, and, but I think it is very important at this level to, for the the director of the film, the filmmaker, to have their own relationships with um, talent agents. Um, so you know, at I, at ICM, at UTA, at Gersh, wh- wherever wherever they are, and, and start early because I, I mean, I remember on Open House we were dealing with this uh, you know assistant at Gersh named Alex Yarrow. She's now the head talent agent at Gersh. You know, so I can and I'm like, hey, Alex, how you doing? How are your kids? Oh, I'm fine. You know, so. Mm-hmm. You, you want to build those relationships and sustain them over years because actors are going to come and go. You know, you can be best friends with an actor and, and maybe they get famous and maybe they're available to work the week you need them, but, may, but more likely not. But a, an agent or a manager at some of these places, they are going to have a stable of actors for an entire career. And, and, great, advice. Know, so, great advice. Great advice. So – it, you know, for all those filmmakers going to Park City and they're busy chasing trying to get their own agents, it's like, no, 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 no. You, first of all, an agent in Hollywood is not going to care about an indie director because they can't make money off of you. Right. But an eight, but a talent agent who has actors, it's it behooves them to meet directors too because you're always going to be giving their actors work. Whether it's paid work or not paid, well, it doesn't matter because it, it, agents are always trying to get good meaty material for their clients too because it keeps their clients happy. Mm-hmm. So, so they love dev- developing relationships with directors just as much as, as we need them. And, um, and so that, that has really helped me in the long term. And, 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 and that's part of what I get into in the book and, and talking to people is that 
you know, you, you're not just making a film. You you want to, you don't want to just be a filmmaker. You want to be a films maker, plural. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you you you're developing a career out of this. And so, you know, even if you meet an actor on one film and you don't cast them, you know what? You may cast them on the next film. You know. Um, or if you develop a relationship with a, with an agent or a manager, you know, on the talent side and you don't cast their clients this time around, that's cool. You're going to need them, you know, next time around. And by then they may have been promoted from assistant or junior agent. They may be running the agency mm-hmm. and, you know, but you're still the guy that had breakfast with them in park city 10 years ago. And they're like, Hey dude, I remember you, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, but at the end of the day, it's, if, if you've got the material, you know, that you don't need the relationships. If you've, you know, if you've got the good parts for the, for the right actor, um, it doesn't really matter if you have any money, you know? Right. If it's good work, it's good work. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Now, now between us, uh, it was, I guess I was watching your, your video on the book and it said it was sold in 144 countries. Yeah. Including North Korea and Iran. So Um, how in the gods, well, first of all, what was the process of that? So for people listening, understand how you actually sell a movie. Uh, and then after that, how the hell did you get to North Korea? Right. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, on that film, we got a, 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 a foreign sales company. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers, when they right out of the gate, they get a, there's a little bit of confusion about foreign sales agents, foreign mm-hmm. sales companies mm-hmm. versus producers rep and producers mm-hmm. agents. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, for an American indie film, you, there's two big sets of rights. There's North America, basically the U.S. market. And international, and usually you're dealing with different people selling both sides of it. So, for international, you go, you get a sales agent or or foreign sales company. It can kind of be one. Those words are a little bit interchangeable. Mm-hmm. And these are usually these kind of scruffy little companies, just like two or three people each, and they go to all the film markets, like the. AFM, the American film market in, in, uh, in Santa Monica, or mm-hmm. they go to the Berlin market or the Cannes market, not the festivals, but the markets. Mm-hmm. And then they're dealing with, you know, oh, let's sell, uh, you know, pay-per-view to, uh, you know, Sri Lanka or whatever. So mm-hmm. the Sri Lankan pay-per-view guy goes to the market and they're buying films, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, in my case, I dealt with a, a foreign sales company called, uh, Premier Entertainment, I think was the name of them. They changed names a few times, but they, you know, nice guys, mm-hmm. and I got along well with them. And um, and they were able to sell the film. I think they only sold it about ten times, but each time was to a big market. So, like, they sold Latin American rights, and that meant every country in Latin America. They sold the Chinese rights, and if you look carefully in the contract for the, if you sell a film to China, nine times out of ten. That includes the rights to North Korea. Whether it actually played in North Korea or not, I don't know. Right. But I know that, and I know from the contract, Ava DuVernay's film *Middle of Nowhere* was sold, was bundled with my film. They bundled like nine films together, sold them to a Chinese company. So both of us have our films available in North Korea. <laughs> um, but uh, but I know like, and the same with the Middle East. It was like all non-Israel Middle East uh, was one company. And that included Iran, that included Syria, that included Iraq. Right. And but sure enough, like I go to like these Persian uh, pay-per-view sites, and the film is available, you know, with like, Persian subtitles or something. So, you know? so that that really is interesting because you have a movie that's basically a character piece with four yeah. four people who don't. I'm I'm assuming none of the the cast have major draws overseas. 
Not uh, huge. Not I mean, huge. They're not like I mean, Van Damme. Julia <laughs> Stiles and Tay Diggs. I mean, their their name and their in faces, some yeah. cases, um, Melissa George. You know, she's big in Australia and mm-hmm. and England. But honestly, they haven't sold Australia and England yet. So I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> right. So just, so but, generally speaking, they're not. So it's it goes against a, a lot of preconceived notions that yeah, in order I, to sell an indie movie overseas, you have to have. Steven Seagal, John Claude Van Damme, or Chuck Norris, right? Or, or be a genre film, be a horror film, right? Film. Um, this is an indie character piece with basically four people talking in a house. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's really interesting. So, uh, have you seen other films go down? Because I really haven't heard many American indies get this kind of distribution before. Well, they pro- they probably have. You just haven't heard about them, right? And- and it was literally like me looking very carefully at each contract and adding up the territories. And I was like, oh, wow, that's 144 countries. Like, holy cow, that's a lot of the world, you mm-hmm. know. And um, but it's out there, you know, and, and that, you know, and then we had a separate company, a separate distributor, Monterey Media, um, who did North America and they got it on to, you know, we did a small theatrical release in like 50 cities. But then. Um, you know, more importantly, really, uh, it got onto, they got onto Netflix and Showtime and stars and, you know, plus all the, you know, iTunes and Amazon and Hulu and all those things too. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I think it's really nice for in, your investors and your Kickstarter backers and everyone and the actors, you know, and the crew to say, you know, by the way, our film is out there around the world. You know, you can, I saw, I saw a pirated bootleg version of the film with Japanese, not, no, sorry, not Japanese, uh, German, not subtitles, but it was dubbed in German. <laughs> so like, someone actually bootlegged it. And <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it, there was a German distributor. Oh, uh, gotcha. German DVD distributor had, had done the, um, uh, you know, the, the dubbing, but then it got, then I saw it on YouTube and I was like, well, this is kind of funny. But, um, <laughs> which brings yeah. it, which, which brings me to another quick question. Yeah. What's your philosophy on piracy? And because and, and, I know a lot of filmmakers jump. I mean, obviously well, it's horrible, but. Funny you should say that. I have a whole chapter in my book about it. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, and again, this is based on a couple articles I had done about piracy. And it's, um, and I've been working with a couple piracy, anti-piracy organizations. Um, but it, it's a, my feeling is a little bit more nuanced than like sort of the standard Hollywood, you know, uh, you know, sue the bastards kind of thing, because as an indie filmmaker, yeah, you're absolutely affected by it. You know, I mean, I, when I see between us on all these websites, I'm like, I'm not making any money off this. Mm -hmm. Um, on the other hand, my distributors have kind of stopped paying me anyway. So it's like, you know, as (laughs) as an indie filmmaker, you're you're always kind of torn on the one hand, you want your art, you know, we're artists, right? Mm -hmm. Capital A or small a, um, you know, you want your art to be out there. You want your your films to be seen by the most number of people, get the most clicks and the most hits and the most, you know, whatever, shares. On the other hand, you've got a fiduciary responsibility to your investors to say, um, no, we actually need to make money and we can't make money if the film is pirated. So, which kind of brings me back to the point that if you can raise your money through, um, uh, through donations, either nonprofit donations or crowdfunding or whatever, then you literally don't have an obligation to pay back your investors. Well, if you don't have an obligation to pay back your investors, then you don't, then you're not really obligated to make money off your film. Then go ahead and have it pirated. And then Mm. that way, at least you're getting most number of people to see it. Now, most filmmakers, if you've got a feature, that's not really 
where you're at. But if you've got a short, well, I did one short, put it on YouTube for free, you know, half a million people have seen it. I'm like, that's awesome, you know. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I'm not obligated to anyone to, to put, give, right. give their money back. Right. On a feature, though, it is different because you do usually have investors or, or you know, residuals for yourself or your actors that you, you, you do want to make money. So that is, that is the big challenge facing indie filmmakers. Um, uh, and it's, it's, there's no easy solution because if you're a studio film, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy for the studios, but they actually have a, a room full of lawyers and interns and paralegals like, that can send out cease and desist letters and take down notices on to YouTube and, and, and things like that. If an indie filmmaker, for me to do that, it's literally an hour out of my day every day. Mm-hmm. If I really want to take down all the, the copies of my film, you know, everywhere in the world. On the other hand, if I do that so much, no one's going to see the film ultimately, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it's a, it's, it's not an easy, it, it, there is no solution to it mm-hmm. except to not pay your, except to make your films as a nonprofit, you know, uh, right. that is really the only solution to it. And then you don't have to worry about piracy, but you know, most people aren't in that situation. So you've got to worry about it. Uh, now in your book, you, uh, you use that name dropping, uh, I guess it's the name dropper, right. Yeah. Uh, with some very, uh, you know, legendary now filmmakers. Uh, can you, can you maybe share a few truth bombs from like a Chris Nolan, Russo brothers or Lynn Shelton? Um, yeah, well, the Russos were great. They, you know, Joe Russo, a couple of years ago, he was back at Slamdance, and we were having our 20th anniversary. He said, oh, Dan, you got to, Mervis, you got to get back, in, you got to get into TV, man. That's where the real action is. Of course, easy for him to say after doing years of Arrested Development community, mm-hmm. you know, the Russos are now doing, you know. <laughs> Captain America's Civil yeah, Adventures. And loving it. I mean, they're having a great time doing it. They mm-hmm. love it. But, um so I said, okay, Joe, I'll, I'll take you up on that. And so I spent like a concerted like three months trying to get myself hired as a TV director. Mm-hmm. And it was, and literally for every day for about three months, I got an, a meeting with a studio or, or a network or a production company, like just to talk about TV directing. And it was, and it was a, it was a, you know, I wrote an article for Filmmaker Magazine about it at the time, which is now, you know, a chapter in the book. And, uh, and I talked to Joe at the end of this whole process and uh, he said, so, so what, what came out of this three months of meetings? I said, well, uh, he said, you know, did you get hired? I said, no, I didn't get hired. Uh, I, he, I said, uh, but, I, but I got $250 for writing an article in Filmmaker Magazine. <laughs> so he's like, all right, well, that's something, you know. So, um, you know, and eventually that, that, that made its way into the book. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think the, the thing too about all these guys is that if you if you meet famous director friends, um, uh, you, you've got to also know what you can get out of them. At the end of the day, you know, Chris Nolan's not going to invest in my next film. Mm-hmm. But for example, in casting between uh, Bernard and Huey is a great example. You know, I was pitched uh, Jim Rash. You know, who's from as an actor at Dunk Community, but as a screenwriter, he won an Oscar for co-writing The Dependence, Alex mm-hmm. Payne's film. Mm-hmm. And um, so right before meeting with him, I, you know, texted or, or sent a quick email to, to Joe Russo. And it's like, Joe, what's, uh, how's Jim to work with? Because I knew he'd worked with him on Community. And mm-hmm. he wrote back right away, you know, he's great. He's awesome. You should cast him. And I did. And he, and Joe was right. He was, Jim was uh, fantastic to work with and is amazing in the film. So, 
you know, I think that's the interesting thing is to realize is that, you know, as a filmmaker, you need to build this network of other filmmakers because believe me, some of them will become famous. Some of them will become, you know, powerful people in Hollywood. And it doesn't mean that they're going to do any direct favors for you. But when it comes to like sharing information on actors and things like that, or, or on distributors or agents, um, that's where those friendships and those relationships are really going to be, be helpful and, and useful to you. You know, um, it's, it's not like, it's not like Joe's going to get me, uh, you know, the next Marvel movie. <laughs> right. No, but, 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 but Joe could easily introduce you to somebody at a party, uh, that might be able to help you in the next project. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Or, or just, or, 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 like I said, like you have to know kind of what to ask and when to ask, you know, right. these things. So, right. um, but, uh, you know, I mean, um, you know, I, I was privileged enough to, to get to know Robert Altman when he was alive. And, and I talk about, you know, his advice in here, you know, about casting, you know, uh, casting being 90% of directing, mm -hmm. you know, but I, it's taken me, you know, a good 20 years to figure out what the other 10% is. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but getting into the nuts and bolts of like, okay, how do you do, you know, he was such a pioneer in using individual lavalier mics on different tracks yep. um and mash you know, right. in nashville and and really i've taken that to heart with all my films um but but getting to know sort of the reasons why he he did that which really not a lot of people talked about um you know it was because he didn't want the lowest paid member of the crew the boom operator uh, uh to be the one deciding who he's going to listen to in the mix he said, I'm the fucking artist. I want to make that decision. And, I, and the only way I can do it is if I record sound on everyone and then in the mix, I'm the one listening to this person or that person. And it was like, wow, that is, you know. It's brilliant, actually. Yeah, it's brilliant. But it, you know, it, but it also did so many other things, too. It, it, you get better performances from the actors because they always, they never knew when they were being recorded and when they weren't being recorded. You know, mm -hmm. it kind of dovetailed with his use of the long, you know, zoom lenses, too. Um, but it meant that he never had ADR, which again meant that he always got better performances. So, uh, and it was, you know, so it was things like that, that you pick up from directors here and there, or, you know, I talk about, um, you know, working on a John Carpenter movie, uh, where I shot the behind the scenes, the EPK footage. And I think that is a really great opportunity for filmmakers. If, if you're, if you're between projects or something, if you can shoot, EPK footage on even if it's just your friends films you will learn so much because you literally get to sit right next to the director and whether it's just your other fellow filmmaking friend or someone like John Carpenter you, you don't always get that access so um you know so it's things like that like okay what do you do between projects um, and then you and, and then you could either see how it's done right or how it's done wrong either way you're learning exactly. yeah either way yeah either way like anytime you're on a set I mean I Honestly, I I survived by renting out my house to commercials. You know, we just had a we just had a frozen broccoli commercial here like <laughs> three days ago. Nice, um, which is great. I paid the mortgage this month, but um, <laughs> but I was like, you know, I'm I'm on set. Like, wow, what you know? They use this kind of camera, this kind of lens, and this kind of slider. Like, oh, I've never seen that slider before. Like, you know, how did they get steam to come out? You know, you learn so much just from just from the pace and the tempo of these things. Um, even if it's completely different than what you're going to be doing, you know. Now, um, what are you? What's your feeling on the state of self distribution today? Because I know it's it's a lot different than when you first started Slam Dance back in the day. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, at, right after we did Slam Dance, I decided to do self distribution on my film on a movie, 
And we wound up playing it in 33 cities in uh, all across the country. And it actually, uh, and we started in the Midwest. We started in Omaha and worked our way out to the coasts and wound up with an 11-week run at Lemley's, um, uh, uh, you know, here in L.A., which is pretty remarkable. And it included me wearing a sandwich board in front of the Sunset Five Theater for, mm-hmm. for most of those 11 weeks. Um, and the interesting thing about it, I mean, is that it, it we didn't make money, but we didn't lose money. It was, it was sort of a revenue-neutral thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was fun. It got the film out there, and it got us a theatrical release where we wouldn't have had one otherwise. Um, but uh, the interesting thing is that the, you don't necessarily have to lug a 35 print around anymore, um, but a lot of the techniques really haven't changed at all You know, for self-distribution. You still have to do the same legwork as far as um, finding bookers for your film and finding venues and then promoting. And whether you're wear- literally wearing a sandwich-, sandwich board or doing it on Twitter and Facebook and whatever else, um, it's the same amount of time and effort and shameless self-promotion um, regardless of, of what it is. I mean, I've, I've thrown raw steak at audiences at screenings before. Mm-hmm. I've thrown corn cobs at audiences. You know, whatever it takes to get people, you know, in there – and um, and so, strangely enough, like I don't think anything has changed. I mean, the, well, how about the? the I mean, the about, but the, the digital, but the digital version of it, like all the all the options now that you have online, like through. Yeah, but it's I still think. all about like, do you, are you willing to put on a digital sandwich board? And some right. People yeah. Are and some people aren't. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Um, it's a little less stressful on the shoulders and the back, but that's about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I really. It, it, yeah, I mean the tech, the techniques change every year, you know, as far as which social media platforms do what and do this, and you know, you've got the tug and the this and the that. Mm-hmm. But um, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to the same kind of thing. Do you have you know people on the ground in that city that can help you you know promote the film? Are you getting press? I mean, to get press for your own film. Um, this re- this really hasn't changed in, in 20 years or 25 mm-hmm. years. The, you know, y- you can't get local newspapers to review your film unless you have a theatrical release. And you can't get national media to review your film unless you at least start in New York, um, mm-hmm. not even L.A. counts. And even then, you really have to tell them it's a n- national release. Like just booking one theater in New York isn't going to get the New York times even to look at you right review the film so it's funny like with all the talk about vod and day and date and all that you know the bottom line is you still can't get reviews unless you are a theatrical release in a in a significant way and that hasn't changed at all um it people kind of think it has but it really hasn't you're still screwed if you're the indie guy and you're just booking one theater at a time you know now, so, now, um, so what advice would you give a filmmaker just starting out in the business? Well, marry well. That's for one. <laughs> you know, I recommend either going to med school graduation ceremonies or better yet, <laughs> find an entertainment law student who is going to be a successful entertainment lawyer. And then that way you get a, a well-heeled spouse who is also can be your entertainment lawyer. And so you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. Nice. Um, so I definitely recommend that. Don't, don't date actors or actresses or <laughs> not if you plan to marry them anyway. Um, and certainly not other filmmakers. Jesus. That's, I mean, that's just, that's just death. I understand completely. Right there. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, people think I joke about that, but no, 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 I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
the other thing that I, you know, and I talk about this in the book too, is uh, the Cheerful Subversive Guide to Independent Filmmaking available wherever fine books are sold online. <laughs> Don't worry, we will promote the heck out of it. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> um, but uh, it, is that the festival circuit? I mean, we just talked about theatrical self distribution, but really, even if you get a good theatrical release, not that many people are seeing your films in theaters anymore. So, but what I really advocate is is a volume approach to film festivals. Is that you know everybody is kind of so focused on where they're going to premiere and whether it's Sundance or Toronto or South by or whatever it is. Um, uh, but there are so many really great festivals around the country and around the world and festivals do a really good job of putting butts in the seats. Like most festivals, you don't have to promote your film that much and you will get a pretty full house. Um, uh, and, and really that's the one place where you can engage with an audience, with your introductions, with your Q and A's, with your, talkback sessions or, 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 or cocktail parties with, with, with actual, you know, audiences that are real cinephile audiences that that want to see films and want to meet filmmakers. And, and if you've made a comedy, you, you, you hear the laughter of an audience. You know, if you've made a drama, you hear them crying. If you, you know, if you've made a comedy and nobody's laughing, you tell people it's a drama, you know? So, but it's, so the festival experience in and of itself as, again, as, as artists, which such as we are, is I think a, a really richly rewarding experience. And and so many people I see wait so long to get this big premiere at this big industry festival. And meanwhile, they pass on so many other great festivals, you know, smaller regional festivals. But, you know, that regional isn't a dirty word if the region they're sending you to is the Bahamas or Athens or mm-hmm. Germany. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Who wouldn't want to go to all these places? You know, um, and then meanwhile, you're meeting you're meeting other filmmakers, you're meeting actors, you're meeting you know potential investors, you're seeing the world. It's like you're getting laid. You know, whatever it takes. You know, th- there's a there's a. I, I'm a big advocate of just the festival experience in and of itself. If you've got the you know time and inclination to do it, and haven't moved on to your next film, because it certainly it does prevent you from doing that. But. Um, but yeah, that's so. That's the other advice I have for filmmakers is, is that you know, the festival, you know, festivals have the word festive in there, so you should go to them and have fun and and make the most of them. And and even if you don't get into, you know, especially this time of year, um, even if you didn't get into Sundance or you didn't get into Slamdance, go to Park City. Like it's sometimes mm-hmm. it's you'll meet more people and have a better time if you don't have a film in a festival or you know, or if you're in LA, go to. You know, I mean, this week there's the Culver City Film Festival. You know, go see films, meet filmmakers. You know, um, just because your own film isn't playing there doesn't mean you can't be a part of a festival or volunteer at your local festival. Um, because also, you see what other films are out there in a way that you really don't otherwise. Now, uh, these are the last two questions are this, uh, the questions I ask all my guests. Uh, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life? Uh, at least in the film business, it was that it took me 20 years to figure this out, that you're not going to get, there's no incentive for agents or managers to sign you as an indie film director, because literally if they take, if you're spending five years between films and it will take you five years, but at least between some of your films, um, and, and the, at most you're maybe making a hundred thousand dollars if it's a really successful indie film, you know, um, 
an agent is making 10% of that and they've spent five years to get that, there's, there's no real incentive for them. Um, there's a reason agents are called lit agents and they're not called dirt agents um, because they sell scripts because they can make a lot of money in a very short amount of time by selling spec scripts. Anyway, so it's taken a long time to realize that like, I, I wasted a lot of time in the early part of my career chasing the agencies and chasing agents. And um, I think it's important if you're if you want to be a TV director, it's important if you want to write a script. But as an indie film director, uh, chasing agents and managers is is a waste of time um, to chase for for yourself. What what is a mu- much better use of your time is to chase those talent agents that we talked about earlier, because then you develop those relationships, and then you're also not beholden to any one agency or one agent. You can travel among all of them so basically like and you you speak the truth my friend it's very true and people don't understand that you don't understand that the that it's a business and agents and agents are there to make money uh they might love you but it's about a business they gotta make money so if they bring in an indie filmmaker a lot of times that i've seen my my indie filmmaker friends get you know get agents uh generally speaking is because the agent sees that either they can package a new movie or they could throw them into tv Exactly, and, and those yeah. are the and, and if it's something that they could turn around quickly, or they feel that they can make a decent amount of money with, then they'll take them. If not, yeah. forget. Like if you're just like that, yeah. I, you know, my job is making ten thousand dollar movies for the rest of my life. You're, it's going to be tough getting an agent. But yeah. even look at look at someone like Joe Swansburg or Lynn Shelton. You know, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Lynn's well, Lynn's in TV now, and so is Joe. <laughs> they I make, know. Joe Joe shot a TV show across the street from my house a few months ago. I oh, was nice. Like, Hey Joe, what are you doing here? <laughs> Directing for Netflix or HBO or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. doing his Netflix show. I think he's got like a couple. Yeah, because now I think he got the taste of it. He's like, oh, this is nice. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to no, keep doing this. I mean, I, I'm very happy for him and jealous completely. But you know, but <laughs> did Joe ever? Did Joe ever go to Slam Dance? You know, he's been to Slam Dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we've ever shown any of his films. Okay. Uh, but I've seen him up there a bunch. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, and there's a lot of overlap between some of his pals and uh, and ours. So yeah, so we've gotten to know him over the years. But no, I don't. I don't think we've ever shown any film that he directed, which is remarkable because he's made like forty. 30- but yeah, so, thirty-eight, <laughs> thirty-seven. But, you know, but look, I mean, that's a it's it's amazing. I mean, he just kept churning them out, whether they were good, bad, didn't you care, know, didn't care, doesn't matter. You know, he just kept. I mean, that's a it's a whole different ethos. I I can't, I couldn't keep up with that pace. But you know, God bless him. You know, more power to him, and and also working with other filmmakers and collaborators. You know, he was great about that. Yeah, so he, he was acting. And, and eventually, yeah. you build. You know, and it's also a great lesson that. If, it's not like any of his early films, like any one film really hit, mm-hmm. but he built a body of work. He built a career that then eventually, you know, TV people will be like, of course, why wouldn't we hire Joe Swanberg to be a director? You know, so. But it, but took, him, but it took him a decade. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, took, exactly. it took him a decade. And that's what people don't understand. A lot of filmmakers are like, oh, wow, a decade. You mean you don't, you mean you don't go, show, go to Slamdance or Sundance and just get a check from Fox Searchlight or Harvey just shows up and gives you a check yeah. and, and you're on your way? doesn't work that way <laughs> yeah no you just got to keep making more of them and and you know and that means you can't get so precious about your first one that you're mm-hmm. you know, chasing it around the globe for for years and years you gotta okay well what's fine. next next yeah. and the last question is three of your favorite films of all time uh repo man nice uh nice. buckaroo bonsai yes and uh i'll say uh 
Oh, fail safe. Fail. Wow. Did you know those? They actually, after speaking to you for a little bit over an hour now, they are their perfect picks for you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The perfect picks, man. Well, listen, what can people find you, by the way? Uh, my house. I'm here. No, no, don't, don't, don't give your personal address out. No, uh, uh, <laughs> online. Where can people find you? They should go to uh, danmervish.com. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, they can reach, yeah, D-A-N-M-I-R-V-I-S-H.com. And then that has links to the books, to my movies, to um, to everything. And then, you know, in Park City, I'll be up at Slam Dance. I, I always host the... Um, well, I read a poem on opening night, but then I always host some of the Q and A's, and then and then do the hot tub summit. We didn't talk about that, but that's a big mm-hmm. thing I do every year, mm-hmm. and um, we've been doing that for about ten years. And I think we'll be doing it this year. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when that is, but basically, it's a big panel discussion in a hot tub where we talk about everything we just talked about. So nice, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's the wettest panel discussion in Park City. So, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, so yeah, so if you're in Park City, come to the top of Main Street, um, Treasure Mountain Inn, and just look for me. Very cool, bro. Man, Dan, thanks so much for taking out the time to, uh, oh, to being on The Hustle, man. fun. Appreciate it. Dan was an absolute pleasure, and I had so much fun. I actually interviewed him again, like I said, at Slam Dance at Park City this year. So uh, please check out our show notes to check out that other interview that I did with Dan at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash 135. And if you want to get uh, a link to his amazingly titled book, The Cheerful Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking, from pre-production to festivals to distribution, uh, again, head over to the show notes and I'll have a link for it there. And again, guys, with this special series, I am going out daily. So again, don't get used to it, but it will be, uh, I have another one out tomorrow. And, uh, and I think we got maybe two more. I have to two to three more. I'm not sure, but I at least got two more for sure coming out. And uh, and I hope you've enjoyed this series. Please let me know what you guys think of this. You know, I I, I took a lot to go to Sundance, man. It was a lot of work. So if you guys like this and want to see more of it, please give me a shout out. Uh, you can always email me at ifhsubmissions at gmail.com. Also, if you have any questions about the business, I will have an Ask, Ask Alex episode coming up soon. So you could just, uh, again, email me at ifhsubmissions at gmail.com. If you have any questions about the business, about my Sundance trip, about anything, uh, I'll uh, pick it, pick a few questions and uh, answer them on the show. So also, uh, we are less than a month away from the world premiere of This Is Meg. It's incredible how I got started with this little movie and all of a sudden I'm going to be world premiering at an amazing festival like Cinequest. So uh, I will put links to, uh, if you're in the area, if you want tickets, man, I'd love for you guys to come out and support that would be amazing. So if you're going to be at Cinequest this year, please hit me up. We'll grab a coffee, do something. It would be awesome. So also be adding some new lessons uh, and new courses to the Indie Film Syndicate at IndieFilmSyndicate.com. So keep an eye out on that. And I'll be posting about those uh, new lessons for the This Is Meg course, as well as some other stuff that I have in the works. So guys, thank you for everything. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Indie Film Hustle podcast at IndieFilmHustle.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-F-I-L-M-H-U-S-T-L-E.com. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. 
whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck. Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia. Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia.